Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 3rd, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is the Protocols of Satan, Part 10. I hope I'm not boring people to death, or not about to bore people to death, with the details that I think are important to bring to the surface, and that are important to show how history and the protocols go together, because the protocols certainly were incrementally fulfilled by world Jewry over most of the 200 years since their emancipation in France. In the last segment of our presentation of the Protocols of Satan, we finally began to present the text of the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, employing a translation found in the book The Protocols and World Revolution, attributed to Boris Brassall and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company. Upon beginning to present the text of the Protocols, we did not get very far. But here we will nevertheless attempt to summarize what we had presented last week, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago. The first protocol is subtitled, The Basic Doctrine, and it sets forth a viewpoint of mankind and the world which perceives man as a merely primitive animal concerned exclusively with his own preservation and how he may dominate his fellows. There it becomes evident that the protocols are predicated upon the godless evolutionary view of the origins of man, which we perceive to be the view that Jews favor and promote incessantly in their media and in their pseudo-academic writings. And I say pseudo-academic because the Jews have no truly academic writings. As soon as they put their pen to the paper, they're lying. They then assert that in the formation of societies, man submitted to law only under the threat of force, the might-is-right theory of society, which is once again predicated upon godlessness. This is indeed a satanic view of human origins and human behavior. It is also the antithesis to true Christianity. But as we also witnessed... Henry Ford, in the International Jew, agreed with this assessment of human behavior, which is found in the Protocols. We perceive that the authors of the International Jew, having only experienced society in a capitalist system, where man is indeed reduced to the status of beast, seems to have agreed with the Protocols on that basis. Now we may add, that they also experience society only from the viewpoint of world empires, and that their concept of nationhood was highly diluted by that experience. Among the general masses of people in the West today, the fact that there is no true concept of nationhood buttresses our position. We would assert that it was not that way from the beginning. The Jewish view of man as beast only becomes evident under a Jewish economic system and a Jewish system of government, 
As we had also asserted earlier in the series, the protocols, the authors of the protocols, understood that they had the power to implement the plans which it outlines because they were already in control of the society which they planned to conquer. Man did not begin as the self-indulgent beast that the Jew portrays him to be in the protocols. Rather, capitalism and democracy reduce man to that beastly state where he is forced to compete against the members of his own community rather than cooperate with them mutually as brethren. So presenting those first points of the protocols, we countered their opinions in several ways. Firstly, we gave a description of the basis for nationhood which was explained by Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf. Hitler properly explained that love for one's nation begins with one's immediate family and nurturing and extends to the wider circle of one's own kindred, the group from which a nation naturally develops. For love of one's kindred people, one sacrifices himself for the sake of community, but one may also find a greater prospect of self-preservation in that very ideal. Jewish capitalism and the promotion of individualism marginalizes and eventually eradicates that instinct in the Aryan man. From Judges chapter 9 in the parable of the trees of the forest, we address the Jewish claim that all men wish to rule over others. In truth, only the basest of men desire to rule over their fellows. However, once again, the capitalist system has compelled a greater number of men to incline towards that base element of their nature. Originally, man understood that only God could be their rightful king, and men who understood that would not seek to rule over others. The parable teaches us that the noble man seeks his sense of value from what he may do for his community, and not from how he may enrich himself at the expense of his community. And here is where an understanding of true Christianity is of the utmost importance. True Christianity is the only potent antithesis to the structure of satanic world rule outlined in the protocols. If men practice that love for their brethren and their kindred which true Christianity demands, Satan would not be able to coax them into competing with one another like beasts, and Satan would not be able to conquer and rule over them. If men understood that only God could be their king, and that God's law must therefore be maintained by each individual among them, then they would not seek to rule over one another with their own opinions of righteousness. And once again, Satan would not be able to conquer and rule over them. When men are of one mind in Christ and keep that mind in every aspect of their community life, the devil cannot overcome them. These basic differences between the satanic objective to rule over men 
and the Christian objective for the kingdom of God must be kept in mind when reading the protocols. Men will never be united against Satan under the systems of man, but man can be united against Satan under God and Christ. The Jew exploits men by dividing one against another so that the Jew may rule over each and every one of them. And that is the premise upon which the protocols continue as we proceed from the point where we left off last week. And this is protocol number one, continued. Political freedom is not a fact, but an idea, the words of the protocols. One must know how to employ this idea when it becomes necessary to attract popular forces to one's party by mental allurement if it plans to crush the party in power. The task is made easier if the opponent himself has contradicted the idea of freedom, the so-called liberalism, for the sake of the idea and for the sake of the idea yields his power. Now, now the word contradicted certainly seems to be an error because it's totally out of context. The Marsden text reads the same sentence thusly, and I'm certain more correctly. This task is rendered easier if the opponent has himself been infected with the idea of freedom, so-called liberalism, and for the sake of an idea is willing to yield some of his power. And the protocols continue from Boris Bressall. <coughs> Excuse me. It is precisely here <coughs> that the triumph of our theory becomes apparent. The relinquished reins of power are, according to the laws of nature, immediately seized by a new hand, because the blind force of the people cannot remain without a leader even for one day, and the new power merely replaces the old, weakened by liberalism, meaning that the old power was weakened by liberalism, so a new power inevitably has to take its place. And this is absolutely true. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, where he warns of the eternal subverters of society, warned against liberalism specifically, where he said, These are wells without water, these infiltrators into every white society in history. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. In other words, they have a holocaust coming. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. In that passage, Peter is not making a prediction, but rather he is outlining a pattern, a pattern which has often been followed in history. The medieval Christian society had for a long time been free of them who live in error, 
meaning the Jews. But once the Jew infiltrated that society and began to promise them liberty, enticing them with fleshly desires, the Christian society became enslaved to the gods set forth by the Jew. Now the formerly Christian peoples are indeed enslaved to the servants of corruption. An honest examination of history reveals that the dawn of liberalism heralded the ability of the Jew to undermine Christian society. For, as it was in Russia, it was also in the West in the centuries which preceded Russia's fall. In his book, The Third Rome, Holy Russia, Tsarism, and Orthodoxy by Matthew Raphael Johnson, the author quotes a Russian writer named Sergei Pushkarev, who wrote in a book called The Emergence of Modern Russia, 1801-1917, through 1917, that the common belief that the revolutionary movement in Russia began only as an answer to the reactionary policy of the government, that's the belief that the court historians lead us to believe, does not correspond to the facts. For the revolutionary movement among the intelligentsia, the coffeehouse Jews, began precisely at the height of the liberal reforms in the period between the emancipation of the peasants and the introduction of the Zemstvo and judicial reforms of 1864. And I'm probably destroying the pronunciation, but the Zemstvo, Z-E-M-S-T-V-O, was a system of elected councils to administer local affairs which was established under the liberal reforms which were conceded by the Tsar in the 19th century. So under the guise of liberal reforms, in the name of liberalism, the Tsar agreed to give up some of his power in order to placate and accommodate certain restless elements among the people. And in that, the Jew found the opportunity he needed to exploit a weakness and ultimately undermine Christian Russia exactly as we see outlined in the protocols. Other factors, such as the war against Germany, only assisted the cause. Now, we are not promoting any particular political ideology of men, although we do respect some of them from a secular perspective, and we only seek the truth of history. In the Doctrine of Fascism, by Benito Mussolini and Giovanni Gentile, we read the following comparison, comparison of fascism and liberalism. The text has many footnotes and citations, which we will have to omit here, but a complete copy along with a serial presentation in three podcasts, is posted at the Mein Kampf Project at Christagenia. It will be linked to this presentation. Fascism, quoting Mussolini and Gentile. Fascism wants man to be active and to engage in action with all of his energies. 
It wants him to be manfully aware of the difficulties besetting him and ready to face them. It conceives of life as a struggle in which it behooves man to win for himself a really worthy place, first of all by fitting himself, physically, morally, and intellectually, to become the implement required for winning it. As for the individual, so for the nation and so for mankind. Hence the high value of culture in all its forms, artistic, religious, and scientific, and the outstanding importance of education. Hence also the essential value of work by which man subjugates nature and creates the human world, economic, political, ethical, and intellectual. The fascist conception of life is a religious one, in which man is viewed in his imminent relation to a higher law, endowed with an objective, will, transcending the individual, and raising him to conscious membership of a spiritual society. Those who perceive nothing beyond opportunistic considerations in the religious policy of the fascist regime fail to realize that fascism is not only a system of government, but also, and above all, a system of thought. It was a closely Christian thought. Of course, it wasn't perfect, but it was close. In the fascist conception of history, man is man only by virtue of the spiritual process to which he contributes as a member of the family, the social group, the nation, and in function of history to which all nations bring their contribution. Hence the great value of tradition in records, in language, in customs, and in the rules of social life. Outside of history, man is a non-entity. Fascism is therefore opposed to all individualistic abstractions based on 18th century materialism, and it is opposed to all Jacobinistic utopias and innovations, a reference to the Jacobins. This reference is to all of those Jewish ideas promoted through Freemasonry and the other Jewish secret societies and culminating in the Protocols. It does not believe in the possibility of happiness on earth as conceived by the economistic economistic, I'm sorry, literature of the 18th century, and it therefore rejects the theological notion that at some future time the human family will secure a final settlement of all its difficulties. And of course this is from the perspective of a worldly viewpoint in which all races, and even Jews, are unfortunately considered human. And of course we cannot reconcile all of them. That happiness is a Jewish utopia which is sold to Gentiles so that Jews can rule over them. It's never going to happen. Fascism did not accept egalitarianism. This notion runs counter to experience, continuing with Mussolini, which teaches that life is in continual flux and in process of evolution, and I don't think that he meant that people were evolving, but that life was. 
In politics, fascism aims at realism. In practice, it desires to deal only with those problems which are the spontaneous product of historic conditions and which find or suggest their own solutions. Only by entering into the process of reality and taking possession of the forces at work within it can man act on man and on nature. And I believe by life evolving, he was speaking of a collection of societies on the earth. And continuing with Mussolini, anti-individualistic, the fascist conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with those of the state, which stands for the conscience and the universal will of man as a historic entity. It is opposed to classical liberalism, which arose as a reaction to absolutism and exhausted its historical function when the state became the expression of the conscience and the will of the people, which is close to Adolf Hitler's idea of the state. Liberalism denied the state in the name of the individual. Fascism reasserts the rights of the state as expressing the real essence of the individual, and if liberty is to be the attribute of living men and not of abstract dummies invented by individualistic liberalism, like we have walking the streets all over America today, then fascism stands for liberty, and for the only liberty worth having, the liberty of the state and of the individual within the state. The fascist conception of the state is all-embracing. Outside of it, no human or spiritual values can exist, much less have value. This understood, fascism is totalitarianism, and the fascist state, a synthesis and a unit inclusive of all values, interprets, develops, and potentates the whole life of a people. And criticisms of fascism aside, both the fascists and the National Socialists were actually political reactionaries themselves who saw the dangers of liberalism, properly identified its origins and its objectives, and observed the resulting decadence of society wherever it was implemented. So both the fascists and the National Socialists sought to repair it, defeating liberalism and restoring their nations to some form of nationalistic and Christian values and non-Jewish nationalist economic control. That is self-preservation, but it is called anti-Semitism by the Jew. That is the primary reason why the Jew has demonized those systems of government above all others and had to eliminate them by enticing all of the other nations under Jewish control to make war against them and to destroy them. And this represents the bind that man has gotten himself into as he mistakenly believes that he should govern himself. Liberalism was sold to the people of Europe as the answer to absolutism, 
or the rule of the more or less hereditary kings and princes, the monarchical power. But as we shall see here in the protocols, and as we have now witnessed in history, the forces that had labeled the rule of the nobles as despotism and overthrew them through liberalism only wanted to introduce a new despotism, and they did, the despotism of money. Man, enticed into the belief that he could rule himself, broke free from his kings, only to fall into slavery to those who had money in their own power. Here we shall read the assessment of this passage of the Protocols. From the International Jew, from Book 1, Chapter 11, from page 61, and this is not the complete assessment, but here the authors put together a thread of connected passages from throughout the protocols which reveal the intentions of the authors, the true intentions. So we shall follow it in part, actually for about a page and a, page and a quarter, perhaps. Quoting from the International Jew, now all, this is, all, now all this is accomplished, not by acts, but by words. The word brokers of the world, those who wish words to do duty for things, in their dealings with the world outside of their class, are undoubtedly the Jewish group, the international Jews with which these articles deal, and their philosophy and practice are precisely set forth in the Protocols. Take for illustration these passages, and the first is from the, the small paragraph that we just read. The first is from the first protocol. Political freedom is an idea, not a fact. It is necessary to know how to apply this idea when there is need of a clever bait to gain the support of the people for one's party. If such a party has undertaken to defeat another party already in power, this task is made easier if the opponent himself has been infected by principles of freedom or so-called liberalism and for the sake of the idea will yield some of his own power. Or consider this from the fifth protocol. To obtain control over public opinion, it is first necessary to confuse it by the expression from various sides, and this, this describes every corner of the internet, to confuse it by the, vari by the expression from various sides of so many conflicting opinions that the Gentiles will lose themselves in the labyrinth and come to understand that it is best to have no opinion on political questions, which is not given to society at large to understand, but only to the ruler who directs society. And the authors of the protocols call that the first secret. We would call it the rabbit hole. And they go on to say, the second secret consists in so increasing and intensifying the shortcomings of the people in their habits, passions, and mode of living, that no one will be able to collect himself in the chaos. And, consequently, people will lose all their mutual understanding. This measure will serve us, 
also in breeding disagreement in all parties, in disintegrating all those collective forces which are still unwilling to submit to us, and in discouraging all personal initiative which can in any way interfere with our undertaking. So, of course, they have America's parents tied up bringing their kids to after-school sports and drinking beer on Sundays, watching Negroes run up and down a football field. And this is from the 13th Protocol. And you may also notice that we, meaning the Jews who wrote the Protocols, we seek approval, not for our acts, but for our words uttered in regard to one another, to one or another question. We always announce publicly that we are guided in all our measures by the hope, that sounds familiar, and the conviction that we are serving the general good. To divert over-restless people from discussing political questions, we shall now bring forward new problems apparently connected with the people, problems of industry, in these, let them lose themselves as much as they like. Under such conditions, we shall make them think that the new questions also have a political bearing. Like the fact that there's now no industry in the West. It is hoped, quoting the Dearborn Independent, it is hoped, it is to be hoped that the reader, as his eye passes over these details of the program, is also permi permitting his mind to pass over the trend of events, to see if he may detect for himself these very developments in life, in the life and thought of the past few years. And of course, this was written circa 1921. To prevent them, continuing with that protocol, to prevent them from really thinking out anything themselves, we shall deflect their attention to amusements, games, pastimes, excitements, and people's palaces, which we have a, a spurt of that on recent American television, this old house. Such interests will distract their minds completely from questions on which we might be obliged to struggle with them. Becoming less and less accustomed to independent thinking, people will express themselves in unison with us because we alone offer new lines of thought, of course through persons whom they do not consider as in any way connected with us. So today, and I'll give one example, today we have so-called white nationalists who worship screwballs, such as that pawn of Jewry named Friedrich Nietzsche, who will mention later on this evening, or who will be mentioned. In that same protocol, it is plainly stated what is the purpose of the output of liberal theories, of which Jewish writers, poets, rabbis, societies, and influences are the most prolific sources. And quoting the protocol, the Dearborn Independent says, The role of the liberal utopians will be completely played out when our government is recognized. Until that time, they will perform good service. For that reason, we will be 
we will continue to direct thought into all the intricacies of fantastic theories, new and supposedly progressive. Surely we have been completely successful in turning the witless heads of the Gentiles by the word progress. And we must comment on that. That process right there in the protocols began to culminate with the end of the Cold War. When the wall in Berlin came down. When the wall came down, it was because the East and the West had, be had become so close politically that there was really no more difference between them. And the West moved towards communism a hell of a lot more than the East moved towards capitalist democracy or freedom as was the original American ideal. Now we're all communists. So, that's the process whereby Jewish world supremacy became inevitable. That, by that time, by the time the wall came down, this protocol was on its way to fulfillment. And Henry Ford continues by saying, Here is the whole program of confusing, enervating, and trivializing the mind of the world. And it would be the most outlandish thought to be put into words, were it not possible to show that this is just what has been done, and is still being done, by agencies which are highly lauded and easy to be identified among us. A recent writer in a prominent magazine has pointed out what he calls the impossibility of the Jewish ruling group being allied in one common world program because, as he showed, there were Jews acting as leading minds in all the divisions of present-day opinion. There were Jews at the head of the capitalists, Jews at the head of the labor unions, and Jews at the head of those more radical organizations which find even the labor unions too tame. There was a Jew at the head of the judiciary of England and the Jew at the head of Sovietism in Russia. How can you say, he asked, that they are united when they represent so many points of view? They even pushed the flat earth theory. The common unity, the possible common purpose of it all, is thus expressed in the Ninth Protocol. And he quotes the Ninth Protocol to say, People of all opinions and of all doctrines are at our service. Restorers of monarchy, demagogues, socialists, communists, and other utopians. We have put them all to work. Every one of them, from his point of view, is undermining the last remnant of authority, is trying to overthrow all existing order. All the governments have been tormented by these actions, but we will not give them peace until they recognize our super-government. So even today, we have the Jews at Breitbart who have jumped in front of the so-called alt-right parade. The alt-right people act as though they do not even notice this. And now a new conservative movement was captured by the Jews the same way the old Tea Party conservative movement was captured by the Jews ten years ago. And the entire situation is a comedy. To continue with the international Jew, 
because I'm probably digressing too often. The function of the idea is referred to in the tenth protocol also. When we introduce the poison of liberalism into the government organism, its entire political complexion changed. And the Dearborn Independent says that the whole outlook of these protocols upon the world is that the idea may be made the most potent poison, the idea alone, the spirits of Revelation chapter 17, or 16 perhaps. The authors of these documents, the unclean frogs, the authors of these documents do not believe in liberalism. They do not believe in democracy, but they lay plans for the constant preaching of these ideas because of their power to break up society, to divide it into groups, to destroy the power of collective opinion through a variety of convictions. The poison of an idea is their most relied on weapon. The plan of thus using ideas extends to education and, quoting the Ninth Protocol, we have misled, stupefied, and demoralized the youth of the Gentiles by means of education in principles and theories patently false to us, but which we have inspired. It also extends to family life, and quoting the Tenth Protocol, having in this way inspired everybody with the thought of his own importance, individualism. We will break down the influence of family life among the Gentiles and its educational importance. And the Dearborn Independent says that in a passage which might well provide the material for long examination and contemplation by the thoughtful reader, this is said from the second protocol. Until the time is ripe, let them amuse themselves. Let those theories of life which we have induced them to regard as the dictates of science play the most important role for them. To this end, we shall endeavor to inspire blind confidence in these theories by means of our press. Note the successes we have arranged in Darwinism, Marxism, and Nietzscheism the demoralizing effect of these doctrines upon the minds of the Gentiles should be evident at least to us. Nietzsche, God is dead, was certainly a tool of international Jewry, without a doubt, and he received his just deserts when he died in his forties in an asylum. He should have died in his twenties. And for the last passage we will quote from this section of the International Jew, says that this disintegration and division of Gentile society was proceeding at a favorable rate when the protocols were uttered is evident from every line of them, for it must be remembered that the protocols are not bidding support for a proposed program but are announcing progress on a program which has been in the process of fulfillment for centuries and from ancient times, quoting the protocols themselves. They contain a series of statements regarding things accomplished,
accomplished, as well as a forelook at things yet to be accomplished. The split of Gentile society was very satisfactorily proceeding in 1896 or thereabouts when these oracles were uttered. So the authors of the International Jew are found to be in basic agreement with Benito Mussolini, where he wrote with much more brevity that fascism is therefore opposed to all the individualistic abstractions based on 18th century materialism and it is opposed to all Jacobinistic utopias and innovations. It does not believe in the possibility of happiness on earth as conceived by the economistic literature of the 18th century. And more importantly, we see that the Jews did not believe in all of the political paradigms which they were promoting as clearly insisted in the protocols. The National Socialists also sounded the alarm against the dangers of liberalism. The relationship between liberalism and individualism, which divides the members of a community one against another, were noticed in positive Christianity in the Third Reich, which we shall quote here briefly. The whole attitude of National Socialism shows a striking difference on comparison with all that is to be included in the name of liberalism, every singling out of human individuals, every separation of, every separation of interests, confusion of opinions, every irregular appearance of selfish interests, everything that calls forth and emphasizes differences between individuals and between various groups is repellent to the spirit of National Socialism, since it disturbs the unity of the folk, breaks up the team spirit, and menaces the powerful solidarity of the nation. And now, we see that America is fully absorbed in identity politics and becomes more and more divided with every new agenda. Right now it's Black Lives Matter and, and concurrently it's the LGBTQ DEAD movement and, and, and whatever it was last year and the year before and the year before it was gay marriage. It, it was something else and something else and, and identity politics has totally absorbed all of American political discourse so that Americans are continually distracted and continually continually set at odds with one another. So what's going on in America today It is the protocols on speed. It, it's like the protocols on math. Adolf Hitler had written in Volume 1, Chapter 3 of Mein Kampf that Manchester liberalism, as he had called it, was Jewish in its fundamental ideas. It was the plan of the Jew to offer men the false idol of political freedom through liberalism, and then to create so many divisions of interests and parties and political dogmas, as it says in the Ninth Protocol, that people of all opinions 
and of all doctrines are at our service, restorers of monarchy, demagogues, socialists, communists, and other utopians. We have put them all the work, and the result is that no one will be able to collect himself in the chaos, and consequently, people will lose all their mutual understanding, as it says in the fifth protocol, while at the same time they also prevent them from really thinking out anything themselves, we shall deflect their attention to amusements, games, pastimes, excitements, and people's palaces, as it says in the 13th Protocol. And American television is a reflection of exactly that for the last 75 years. All of this is still transpiring today. Whenever we see a man define himself as a Democrat, or a man who defines himself as a Republican, or as a Tea Party member, or even from the so-called alt-right, or a Green, or a Socialist. He is catching himself. He is caught up in one of these pigeonholes designed by the Jew and made to accommodate the assurance of continued Jewish control of the political argument. And the Libertarians are the biggest cucks for Satan. They're the worst of the bunch in American politics. But the Jews are right that political freedom is only an idea and it is one that has never been successfully implemented in all of history. Political freedom is an illusion. As soon as the Jews sold Europe on the idea of political freedom, they had already begun to subvert Europe and impose their own political supremacy through the power of gold and the control of the media, which is the precise plan set forth in the Protocols. Under this very day, men argue over pol party politics and take sides with the ideas that the Jewish media and Jewish pseudo-academics have created for them libertarianism, or socialism, or republicanism, or democracy, or some other corrupt variant of godless government. And I understand that some of those ideas have been around for thousands of years, but that doesn't mean that they began with Arians. And in fact, the first evidence of democracy is found in ancient Babylon. However, Paul of Tarsus and explaining that such government was really imposed upon men as a punishment from God, said that every soul must be subject to more powerful authorities. Since there is no authority except from God, then those who are, are appointed by God they are appointed. Then in that same chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, Paul continued by explaining that worldly governments were permitted to exist under the permissive will of God as a method of punishment of disobedient men. As long as men are disobedient to God, Satan will rule over them until men themselves choose to have their God rule over them. Therefore, the only way to overthrow the Jew is to turn to Christ whether you like it or not. Protocol number one continued. In our day, this is the 1890s perhaps, this was first published in 1905, 
In our day, the power of gold has replaced liberal rulers. It was already over with. There was a time liberalism only lasted 150 years. There was a time when faith ruled. The idea of freedom cannot be realized because no one knows how to make reasonable use of it. Give the people self-government for a short time and it will become corrupted. It didn't last 70 years in the United States. From that very moment, strife begins and soon develops into social struggles, as a result of which states are set aflame and their authority is reduced to ashes. Now this assertion by the Protocols invokes the old maxim, frequently attributed to Meyer Amschel Rothschild, which says, permit me to issue Permit me to issue and control the money of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. And even if Rothschild didn't say that, as some sources contend, it's still true. It's nevertheless absolutely true, and can be applied to every international Jew. George Soros, look at his behavior. The natural result of liberalism is that the power of gold can anoint any man it desires to the offices of power. Something that was difficult to do in the age of monarchy. In this manner the Jew attained to the age-old boast of Satan, where having showed Christ all of the kingdoms of the world, he said, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And while Christ wisely declined this offer, which was made to him by the devil, there are plenty of men today who have accepted the offer gladly. And every single American politician is one of those men who would accept this offer, because they're all in bed with this same Jew. This also helps to explain the history of America from the abolitionist and suffrage movements down to the modern LGBT and Black Lives Matter agitation, every one of which Jews have filled the leading positions or have at least assisted and financed in the background when they would be too conspicuous as leaders. All of these movements have served to destroy the original intentions of the American founders outlined in the Constitution, which were predicated upon elements of liberalism, but which were still not liberal enough for the Jews. Adolf Hitler commented on liberalism, but he did not focus upon it, because while liberalism was indeed contrary to National Socialism, liberalism was not his enemy. As we see the Protocols proclaim here, liberalism had already been replaced as king by the power of gold. This Adolf Hitler understood that his fight was against the international bankers who had already come to rule the world and who were pillaging the German people, having had control of Germany throughout the Weimar era. The National Socialists interfered with that control, and for that, Hitler knew that the Jews were brewing a new war. However, even before Hitler's party came to power, he wrote the following and this is a rather lengthy quote, in Volume 2, Chapter 13 of Mein Kampf, 
where he is speaking of the diplomatic policies of the various nations in relation to Weimar Germany in the aftermath of the First World War. And this reveals the power of gold at work over the relations of the nations in the years leading up to the First World War. And Adolf Hitler says, from the political point of view, it is not in the interests of Great Britain that Germany should be ruined even still more. But such a proceeding would be very much in the interests of the international money markets manipulated by the Jew. The cleavage between the official, or rather traditional, British statesmanship and the controlling influence of the Jew on the money markets is nowhere so clearly manifested as it is in the various attitudes taken towards problems of British foreign policy. Contrary to the interests and welfare of the British state, Jewish finance demands not only the absolute economic destruction of Germany, but its complete political enslavement, the internationalization of our German economic system, that is to say, the transference of our productive forces to the control of Jewish international finance can be completely carried out only in a state that has been politically Bolshevized. But the Marxist fighting forces, commanded by international and Jewish stock exchange capital, cannot finally smash the national resistance in Germany without friendly help from the outside. For this purpose, French armies would first have to invade and overcome the territory of the German Reich until a state of international chaos would set in, and then the country would have to succumb to Bolshevik stormtroops in the service of Jewish international finance. Hence it is that the, at the present time, the Jew is the great agitator for the complete destruction of Germany. Whenever we read of attacks against Germany taking place in any part of the world, and this is in the mid-1920s, this is not after 1933, this is eight years or nine years before Hitler took power. Whenever we read of attacks against Germany taking place in any part of the world, the Jew is always the instigator. In peacetime as well as during the war, the Jewish Marxist stock exchange press systematically stirred up hatred against Germany until one state after another abandoned its neutrality and placed itself at the service of the world coalition, even against the real interests of its own people. The Jewish way of reasoning thus becomes quite clear. The Bolshevization of Germany, that is to say, the extermination of the patriotic and national German intellectuals, thus making it possible to force German labor to bear the yoke of international Jewish finance. That is only the overture of the movement for expanding Jewish power on a wider scale and finally subjugating the world to its rule. As so often happened in history, Germany is the chief pivot of this formidable struggle. If our people and our state should fall victims to these oppressors of the nations, lusting after blood and money, the whole earth would become the prey of that hydra. Should Germany be freed from its grip, a great menace for the nations of the world would thereby be eliminated. 
It is certainly that Jewry uses all its subterranean activities the secret societies, what goes on in the synagogues. Not in the back rooms of taverns. It is certain that Jewry uses all its subterranean activities, not only for the purpose of keeping alive old national enmities against Germany, but even to spread them farther and render them more acute wherever possible. It is no less certain that these activities are only very partially in keeping with the true interests of the nations among whose people the poison is spread. As a general principle, Jewry carries on its campaign in the various countries by the use of arguments that are best calculated to appeal to the mentality of the respective nations and are most likely to produce the desired results. For Jewry knows what the public feeling is in each country. Our national stock has been so much adulterated by the mixture of alien elements that in its fight for power, Jewry can make use of the more or less cosmopolitan circles which exist amongst us. Inspired by the pacifist and international ideologies, in France they exploit the well-known and accurately estimated chauvinistic spirit. In England they exploit the commercial and world political outlook. In short, they always work upon the essential characteristics that belong to the mentality of each nation, just as we see every event the Jews want to enlist Americans in, they exploit American patriotism. When they have when they have this way when they have in this way achieved a decisive influence in the political and economic spheres, they can drop the limitations which their former tactics necessitated, now disclosing their real intentions and the ends for which they are fighting. Their work of destruction now goes ahead more quickly, reducing one state after another to a mass of ruins on which they will erect the everlasting and sovereign Jewish empire. In England and in Italy, the contrast between the better kind of solid statesmanship and the policy of the Jewish stock exchange often becomes strikingly evident. Only in France there exists today, more than ever before, a profound accord between the views of the stock exchange, controlled by the Jews, and the chauvinistic policy pursued by French statesmen. This identity of views constitutes an immense danger for Germany, and it is just for this reason that France is and will remain by far the most dangerous enemy. The French people, who are becoming more and more obsessed by negroid ideas, representing a threatening menace to the existence of the white race in Europe because they, were, they are bound up with the Jewish campaign for world domination, for the contamination caused by the influx of negroid blood on the Rhine in the very heart of Europe is in accord with the sadist and perverse lust for vengeance on the part of the hereditary enemy of our people. Just as it suits the purpose of the cool calculating Jew who would use this means of introducing a process of bastardization in the very center of the European continent and by infecting the white race with the blood of an inferior stock would destroy the foundations of its independent existence. Wow, if Hitler could only see what they're doing in Germany now. In many other places in Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler understood that the stock exchanges and the Jewish bankers 
behind international capital were true forces guiding world political affairs even before the First World War. We also see Adolf Hitler profess that what's happening in Europe today was the objective of the Jews almost a hundred years ago. In Volume 1, Chapter 8 of Mein Kampf, Hitler had written that the struggle against international finance capital and loan capital has become one of the most important points in the program on which the German nation has based its fight for economic freedom and independence. So National Socialist Germany disposed of Jewish control over its national financial system and for that reason more than any other it had to be destroyed. The British once again acted against their own interests by going to war with Germany, as the plutocrats replaced the appeasing Neville Chamberlain with the brutish dupe Winston Churchill. So the financial stock exchanges got their way again. The Russia of the Tsars found itself in the same predicament much earlier, at the dawn of the 20th century. Matthew Raphael Johnson writes on page 201 of his book, The Third Rome, Holy Russia, Tsarism and Orthodoxy, the following, one short paragraph. There is little question that, in spite of English language history, which elsewhere Johnson fully demonstrates is nothing but regurgitated Marxist propaganda when it comes to Russia, there is little question that in spite of English language history, Imperial Russia, during this time, was likely the best-run state in Europe, one without the benefit of Republican politics or capitalist economics. And what is even more telling is that Russia was just beginning her economic expansion into world markets. There can be no question that the refusal of the Romanovs to set up a central bank under the rule of the global financial elite marked them for extinction. Imperial Russia was the only major European power that refused to set up a central bank, though the Bolsheviks, as always, willingly obliged. One of the first things the Bolsheviks did was set up a Jewish-controlled central bank. So the power of Jewish finance already came to dominate most of the world by the end of the 19th century, as the Protocols had boasted, and it fully asserted itself in the wars and revolutions of the 20th century. The mechanism which catapulted Jewish finance to world dominance was liberalism, as the Protocols had also boasted, and it was achieved within less than a hundred years of the time of the Jewish emancipation under Napoleon to continue with protocol number one. Whether the state is exhausted by internal convulsions or whether civil wars deliver it into the hands of external enemies, in either case it can be regarded as hopelessly lost. It is in our power. The despotism of capital, which is entirely in our hands, holds out to it a straw which the state must grasp, although against its will, or otherwise fall into the abyss. 
England was exhausted by internal convulsions by the Jew, perpetrated by the Jew, throughout the 17th century. And by the time of William of Orange, its fate was sealed and the Bank of England was founded. France was also exhausted by internal convulsions throughout the late 18th and 19th centuries, which were all tied to the Masonic lodges and the Jews who controlled them. Civil war delivered Russia into the hands of an external power, the Jewish Bolsheviks who created that war. But America was also the victim of Jewish intrigue resulting in the American Civil War, although the Jews were not able to get a central bank established here until 1913. It was the Rothschilds and other English merchants who began to agitate and divide America, exploiting the slavery issue and the tariffs imposed on exports from the South to divide the nation and drive it to war. And, in a way, the Civil War also delivered America into the hands of foreign enemies, quite indirectly, as the resulting imposition of the 14th Amendment created the false concept of American citizenship, invalidated any controls over citizenship found in the laws and constitutions of the states, and opened the doors to the halls of power, not only to Negroes, but also to Jews and other aliens who in many places before that could not have political power. The despotism of capital created all of these wars, and to this day it is the force which maintains Jewish world supremacy. And to continue with protocol number one, to him, to him who, because of his liberal inclinations, would contend that arguments of this kind are immoral, I would propound, I meaning the writer of the protocols, I would propound the question, if a state has two enemies, and if against the external enemy it is permitted and it is not considered immoral to use all methods of warfare, and as a protective measure not to acquaint the enemy with the plans of attack, such as night attacks or attacks with superior forces, then why should the same methods be regarded as immoral when applied to a worse foe, a transgressor against social order and prosperity? Here, the protocols quite blatantly, quite boldly, and without shame use the concepts of social order and prosperity as the basis for claiming a moral high ground justifying Jewish world supremacy. Yet, Jewish world supremacy was achieved through the destruction of social order and the destruction of the prosperity of medieval Europe as the Jews in the Protocols have already admitted. Here they are citing the morality of these things, not for the sake of morality, the Jew doesn't care about morality, but only to deceive the naive Goyim with references to morality. The Jew is not a moral creature, and is only shrewd enough to use morality as a talisman in order to maintain control, knowing that the Goyim will be deceived. In the next paragraph, the Protocols discusses the risks that are associated with democracy and, politi and political freedom of the people. And to continue to quote from the first Protocol, How can a sound and logical mind hope successfully to guide the masses by means of unreasonable persuasion or by arguments if there is a possibility of contradiction?
even though unreasonable, but which may appear more attractive to the superficially thinking masses. Guided entirely by shallow passion, superstitions, customs, traditions, and sentimental theories, the people in and of the mob become embroiled in party dissensions which prevent all possibility of an agreement, even though it be on the basis of perfectly sound reasoning. Every decision of the mob depends upon the accidental or prearranged majority, which, owing to its ignorance of political secrets, and this is how our Congress here works in America, this is how all the parliamentary democracies in Europe work, in every one of their conferences, in every one of their congresses. Every decision of the mob depends upon the accidental or prearranged majority, which, owing to its ignorance of political secrets, pronounces absurd decisions, thus introducing the seeds of anarchy into the government. And when kings and princes of the people were in control of the nations, the Jew insisted that there should be democracy and political freedom for the people which would inevitably result in this same situation, a loss of stability in factionalism and anarchy. Once the Jew comes to power through his control of capital, he justifies the maintenance of that power by condemning the people as they have no true ability to govern themselves. So, the Jew is only in favor of liberalism, democracy, and political freedom when the Jew is not in control, and the protocols here are an admission of that fact, which is demonstrably proven in the history of the West since the publication of the Protocols. And the Protocols continue. Politics have nothing in common with morals. Not Jewish politics, of course. The ruler guided by morality is not a skilled politician, and consequently he is not firm on his throne. So Jews would deny the kingship of Christ. He who desires to rule must resort to cunning and hypocrisy. The great popular qualities, the Marsden translation has national qualities there. Honesty and frankness become vices in politics as they dethrone rulers more surely and more certainly than the most powerful enemy. These qualities must be the attributes of Goy countries, but we by no means should be guided by them. Our right lies in might. The word right is an abstract idea, unsusceptible of proof. This word means nothing more than give me what I desire so that I may have evidence that I am stronger than you. Where does right begin? Where does it end? And here we have a full illustration of the mind of Satan, who abides in a reality that is absolutely contrary and practically oblivious to that righteousness which is set forth in the word of God. The righteousness of God does not admit that Christians should oppress their fellow men or take advantage of those who are weak. But if the politicians of the West these past hundred or so years have been little but liars, if the media of the West never holds politicians accountable for their lies, and if all of the campaign promises of Western politicians are never fulfilled, 
Now we know why. Because it is the design for government advocated by the protocols. And the protocols are the guiding manual of politics today. That alone is proof of their legitimacy and of their implementation. As we shall see a little further on in the protocols, these politicians are the social climbers, most of whom get their notice in the secret societies, and who have sold their souls by doing the bidding of the Jews in exchange for a comfortable life in politics. But the ancient king of Israel had advised his own son in the Proverbs, in chapter 3, My son, forget not my law, but keep thy but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about my neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. And again in Proverbs chapter 12, He that speaks truth shows forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. Anyone who studies the Hebrew scriptures honestly shall know that these Jews are not the Israelites of the Old Testament. If world Jewish supremacy was a positive step in the divine will of God, then we would expect the world's Jews to govern by godly means. Yet they came to rule by fraud and theft, and they governed by deceit. As Christ had said, if they were the children of Abraham, they would exhibit the works of Abraham. But rather, as Christ had also said, they are the children of the devil. And they cannot keep themselves from lies. If the Jews rule over us, it is because the true children of Yahweh God are being punished for their sins, as the scripture informs us. We will continue at this same point in our next segment with a discussion of the Jewish suppression of democracy in the West now that they do have full control of its governments, which is in fulfillment of these very statements which we have just read, which are found in the Protocols of Satan. I don't know how many of these programs will be required to set forth the text of the Protocols in their entirety, but we hope to move through them somewhat more rapidly after we finish our commentary on this first protocol, which is the basic doctrine. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the death of the Jews. And good night.